What's good, everyone? I'm Langston Clark, founder and organizer of Entrepreneurial Appetite, a series of events dedicated to building community, promoting intellectualism, and supporting Black businesses. In this episode of Entrepreneurial Appetite's Black Book Discussions, we partner with the San Antonio African American Community Archive and Museum to feature a conversation with Mario Salas, author of The Alamo, a cradle of lies, slavery, and white supremacy. Before we bring up our special guest, I would like to welcome Commissioner Tommy Calvert. Would you like to say a few words? Thank you, Deborah. And thanks to all of you for being here tonight. Uh, it's my honor to be a part, a small part of this uh, book signing and uh, discussion with all of you tonight. I'm in the very back of the book. I'm the last thing in the book. But I want to just acknowledge the fact that in this book, we're very fortunate to have, I don't think we'll ever have a book written by someone who is a civil rights leader, a political scientist, a historian, and uh, someone who served on the city council of San Antonio. That is a very unique perspective in which to give us this history. And so I cherish the perspective of Professor Salas, in the Alamo book that he has written. And my part picks up in the current, in the current era right now, which is around the reconstruction of Alamo Plaza. As the fate of history would have it, I happen to represent the Alamo as county commissioner. I represent downtown and the Witte and the Pearl and all these areas. And the issue of funding for the Alamo came up before the commissioner's court somewhat of a surprise to me. There were folks who were working in the background and they wanted $25 million for the Alamo. And many of you know that I was one of the world's foremost abolitionists, modern day abolitionists. I was head of the American anti-slavery group in Boston. So I worked freeing slaves and fighting genocide uh, in Sudan and Burma, across the United States and around the world. And so it was difficult for me as someone who has studied slavery and understood the role of slavery in the Alamo conversation to put $25 million, quite frankly. And the, the way it really happened was Commissioner DeBerry was was really leading the charge there. And for me, I, you guys know I'm always working on a lot of things, and this was not on my agenda. And so when you get something, Deborah, that's not on your agenda, you, you just sort of kind of have to make room and get ready to tackle it, but it's not easy because you got a lot of things that have been ahead of it. And I thought to myself, we have to have the next chapter in the way that we tell this because with books like Forget the Alamo and, and Professor Solace's book, younger people are not looking at the story in the way of John Wayne and the uh, 60s movie. I watch protest march in Austin, and I see young people carrying signs. I've never met them. I do not know them. I don't think Professor Salas necessarily taught them, but maybe he did because he's prolific. And they're carrying signs that the Alamo defenders were slave owners. That's a big change in Texas. And so what I had to do as commissioner was say, we need, a, we need to, to reframe if we're going to embrace this as, as kind of the identity of the Alamo City. Some of us have never, we, we don't really call it the Alamo City, we call it the River City because the Alamo symbolizes slavery to many of us who are civil and human rights leaders. And so I gave a speech at commissioner's court and I said that we need to 
put Jesus back in that church because the Alamo was a church when it was first founded. And, and I said that we, we need to look at this now as an epicenter of healing. Let San Antonio and the Alamo be an epicenter for healing on the issue of white supremacy and slavery. And the way I told it was through my own personal family history. So most of us who have this beautiful hue collection in this room, none, none of us uh, perfectly anything, right? And the reason I'm this color is manifold, but partly because my great-great-great-grandfather, Godfrey Ellisor, was our slave master. And he had relations with my great-great-great-grandmother, and then came Papa Ben, right? And so, in any event, on my father's side, that's my mother's side, on my, on my father's side, I talked about the fact that my father is half Mexican, half black. Biologically, I'm a Trevino. I don't talk about that that much, and dad doesn't talk about that that much. But my father was born from an affair. And so I use my own dirty family laundry, which we don't often talk about, to say that all families, the human family, we all have things in our backgrounds that are not exactly perfect, right? And there are things that I found out, for example, in myancestry.com, that I had ancestors who fought in the Confederate Army. That blew my mind. I mean, I saw the, the, the Confederate flag and I got, you know, chills. I don't like seeing it. And then I looked into the pictures of Godfrey and his brothers who were part of the Confederate Army. And I said, I'll be damned. Here I am, an abolitionist who's been around the world, and I have to reconcile that in my blood rest people who fought for freedom and for oppression, right? And I, and I said, this is the same kind of wrestling that San Antonio has to do over the Alamo. And, and we can be honest, and we shouldn't worship and praise the negative things that our families did, but we should turn a chapter and try to be better than those things. And that's the speech that you'll find in the, in the book. And I submit to you that part of this, this tug of war that we're playing over the Alamo right now will wind up in a very, I, I saw kind of like a washing machine detergent thing stirring up a little bit with, with Mario's book. But in the end, I see a beautiful river, a stream of goodness that can come from reconciling these differences in our history. So I'll leave it with that and just say that uh, I am proud to be part of this historical conversation that needs to be had, that if we're going to embrace the Alamo as an icon of our city, that perhaps it's time that we actually use it as an epicenter of healing for slavery and white supremacy. So thank you for being a part of the conversation. Thank you, Commissioner Calvert. You've come to hear from our friend, Mario Marcel Salas, and the esteemed Dr. Langston Clark. All right, everybody, so thank all of you for joining us here today. Commissioner Calvert, thank you for uh, providing some context for your contributions to um, this book about the Alamo. And I learned something there about, I had no idea the Alamo was a church. I didn't have any idea about that history. So you sharing that and the other context and content that's in this book is very much appreciated. And so before we begin, I want to give you all an idea of what I do and how I partner with SACAM. I am the founder and organizer of Entrepreneurial Appetite, which is a series of events 
dedicated to building community, promoting intellectualism, and supporting black businesses. And when I think about black businesses, I think about that in the broadest sense possible, especially when, when I work with SACAM, the work that these folks are doing to preserve our history and our culture here in San Antonio. So this gathering, this discussion, this meeting is part of my efforts to support the good work that they're doing here in our community. And so without further ado, I also want to introduce you all to Mario Marcel Salas, who is a local historian, a local icon who has deep history of his own and deep roots here in this city. And so I want to begin by asking you, Professor Salas, to just tell us your story before we get into the story of how you over the years spent time creating and curating this book. What is your relationship to San Antonio and how has the Alamo, the history of the Alamo, the misinformed history of the Alamo shaped who you are and got you to the point where you could you could write this book? <clears throat> okay, um, thank you very much. I'd like to thank everybody for being here today. Thanks to SACAM. Thank you for Commissioner Calvert for coming today. I asked the sheriff's deputy to arrest him as soon as he got here, but I don't know what happened with that. But anyway, and uh, Dr. Clark, I want to thank you for having me and so forth. I, I can go, yeah, let me go way back. First off, you know, the interesting part about my ancestry is I'm all over the road. I did my... I got that cheap version of the Ancestry.com for 49 bucks. And, and, and by the way, it's good, but don't depend on it because there's some flaws with it. It doesn't use uh, mitochondrial DNA, which is the female version of the DNA. You get a deeper analysis if you do that. Uh, and I think they're trying to change that. Or they may have already. But um, I'm all over the road. I'm everywhere. Um, I told another professor about that. And he said, I'm jealous. I, all my stuff is from England. And I, I'm not anywhere else. I said, well, that's just too bad. I'm everywhere. And I've got a um, large percentage in Mexico from with the black part of Mexico. I looked at my father's um, fifth, my fifth great-grandfather. That means grandfather, 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 five times. He's, his birth is recorded in the Spanish records that are called Libros de Casta, which means Book of the Caste, Birth Certificate of the Caste People. And I'm not talking about caste as in India, I'm talking about racial caste system. So he's written down and it says mulatto on his birth certificate. So then I, I said, okay, that clears that up somewhat. And so I start looking then in Southern Spain and a lot, I got a lot of ancestors in Southern Spain. So I started checking that out, and the Moors invaded Spain for 700 years, um, and my last name, Salas, is actually from the Arabic Salah, which mean, can mean two or three different things. It can mean peace, it can also mean to pray. So when the Spaniards removed the Moors from Spain, they add the S to Hispanicize and to erase their Arab ancestry. So I, I tell people this all the time, if your last name is Rodriguez, ends with an E-Z, I guarantee you have an Arab relative because the, that's the morphology of the name. The combination of, of the Arab language and Spanish language produces a spelling with E-Z. And if your last name is Alvarez, oh my God, you got the double whammy. Mm. Double whammy. A-L comes from Allah, so Alvarez comes from Allah. By the way, algebra comes from Allah, 
algebra invented in the Middle East. And so most people don't know any of that. So look, I'll go all the way back. I'm 10 years old, I'm walking down Commerce Street. There's a big demonstration in front of Josky's department store. I stop. I'm going to, to the movies. You know, little kids go to the movies, right? Um, so I'm going to the movies, and I see these people demonstrating outside in front of Josky's. I said, hey, what are y'all doing? And well, we're demonstrating because they won't serve black people in this particular uh, restaurant that they had there at Josky's. I said, okay, well, can I come in and join up with this? And the lady there told me, you gotta go, ha- you gotta go home and ask your mama. You can't just come up here and do that. So I said, okay, well, I'll, I'll come back. Um, I never knew her name or who she was. Gosh, that was a long time ago. Let's segue 40 years later. Mm. I run into this lady and she tells me that she was the person that told me to go tell, ask your mama for permission to come to the demonstration. Her name was Lillian Sutton Taylor, G.J. Sutton's sister, um, who was the first black state rep, G.J., the first black state rep um, since Reconstruction uh, in San Antonio. So let's talk about strange. That was strange. Mm. So early on, I involved myself in the struggle for civil rights early on as a kid. Um, from there, Langston, I, I went to um, went to Wheatley High School. We had a boycott of the cafeteria at Wheatley High School. I was in the 10th or 11th grade. Most of my other classmates got expelled, except for me. And to this day, at our alumni meetings, they're still asking me, how come you didn't get expelled? And I said, well, I knew where Dr. Scott I knew the principal and Mr. Bias. I knew the hallways that they walked. So I just went around the building to go to my class. And they just missed me for whatever reasons, so I got away scot-free. But we boycotted the cafeteria for three or four days, shut it down completely because there were flies in the food. Now, you know, that's a demonstration, right? We're demonstrating against flies in the food. So very grassroots demonstration. Wasn't about racism or civil rights or white supremacy, but it was one of my first involvements. Then when I went to San Antonio College, I became a member of SNCC, the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, um, and later became a member of the Black Panther Party. So I was like kind of all over the road with that. And one of the very first projects that we had uh, to take on in San Antonio, Langston, was we had to organize all of the black student unions in San Antonio. So I personally organized the one at San Antonio College, and then we had other members organize all the rest. At Trinity, I participated in that somewhat. Uh, the St. Phillips one uh, was done. The only one we didn't do was St. Mary's because they did that on their own. On their own, Charles Middleton, very famous person in San Antonio, he organized the black student union over there, along with Otis Madison and a few other people. Um, Paul Battle also, yeah. and so, yeah, and so we were organizing Black Student Unions as members of SNCC, um, and uh, we had a breakfast program, which was modeled after the Black Panther Party breakfast program, which um, we fed school children going to Persian Elementary at Antioch Baptist Church every morning. I cooked bacon and eggs, and I felt sorry for them after they ate it, but um, I ain't the best cook in the world. I am good now. But that wasn't good then. Um, but we cooked for them every morning. We gave them classes. And we had those kids, many of them fifth graders, sixth grade. We had them uh, knowing who Angela Davis was, knowing who the Black Panther Party was, 
knowing all about W.B. Du Bois, knowing about Booker T. Washington. We taught those kids that before, while they were eating their bacon and eggs uh, every morning. Um, so that became quite interesting. I, in those days, the civil rights movement was attacked quite often um, by the FBI because J. Edgar Hoover was the head of the FBI. And of course, he hated Martin Luther King. He hated anything that had to do with the struggle against white supremacy. So, so, so let me, so let me ask you a that. question real quick. Go ahead. Because I, I, I find it interesting that you were um, involved with education, uh, the children in our community, feeding them and things like that, telling them about activists of the time, activists of the past. And I'm wondering, in your own childhood, um, as we get to talking about the Alamo, what were the stories you heard about the Alamo growing up living here in San Antonio? <laughs> a lot of them. The, the most interesting one, I think I was 11 years old, I don't know, 12, something like between twelve, eleven, Between 10 and 12 years old. I, I went to the Alamo with my dad, mm -hmm. and um, we were coming out of the Alamo. Of course, I didn't really know why we were there, uh, other than to get a a pop gun and a, a, a coonskin hat and all the paraphernalia. And so we were coming out of the Alamo and this old man, I never forget this, this is kind of what got me going. This old man came up and my dad didn't know him. I said, who is that? I don't know who he was. And I didn't know him. He just, out of the blue, he comes up to us and, say, and says, everything you heard in there is all a damn lie. And I went, huh? I never forgot that, and we didn't know. I never knew who he was. Mm -hmm. That that I, I heard that right off. One of the stories later on in life, I heard uh, Vashon Bird, who was a local community activist, tell me that he was he was he was ashamed of the fact that he went and bought a Davy Crockett coonskin hat, and, and he said, and to this day, I'm still ashamed of that. Yeah. And I said, well, don't be, because you know what it is now. And uh, but there's a bunch of different stories like that. And then when you would, you would talk, and, and a lot of black folk and a lot of brown folk would, over the years and over time, tell me that that battle was about slavery. Mm. It wasn't about freedom and justice. It was about to protect the institution of slavery. So yeah. I heard that right yeah. away. So it seems like, um, and we all know this here, being, being here in San Antonio, and, and I'm not a native, and so coming here, I got a, a, a new education about what the Alamo represented and what it represented for black and brown folk and the history, um, the hidden history that's there. Before we get into to some of the details with that, can you tell us the biography of the book? Right, so, so what was your process and what was, how many years did it take for you to compile this information and put, put these stories together? And then, and then we'll talk a bit about some of the content. Yeah, that's a good question, Langston, because um, people ask me all the time, how long did it take you to write the book? Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, a lifetime. Yeah. Because I was gathering this information my whole life and was able to synthesize the information, of course, later on. So I, I did that all my life. It was always an issue with me wondering about, okay, how much of this is true? How much of it is not true? So in the process of thinking of that, bringing all that to the surface that I had experienced early in life, and then taking the time, and, and it did take me about a year and a half to read about 30 different books from the so-called experts 
And uh, several of them I thought were very interesting. The one that's a gold mine of information is Dr. Philip Tucker's book uh, titled Exodus from the Alamo, The Anatomy of the Last Stand Myth. The other one by Todd Nelson called The Alamo Readers, about 900 pages long. And this guy's not even a historian, but he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he doesn't have degrees, but this guy's a perfect historian. I read that. I read about between 35 and 50 books before I put a pen to this. And that, that took me a while to read all of them. Some of them had titles that were quite interesting, in some cases sickening. Uh, 13 Days to Glory. Oh. Um, I, 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 had, I, I made it a point to cut the, that title to shreds because there are all kinds of myths that take place. Wasn't The actual fighting only took place on one day. The, the other 12 days was just cannon fire. Yeah. And Santa Ana never used a big cannon. He, he didn't, the big cannons never arrived or he didn't want to wait for them. So he used the small cannons. Simple military, that's a military tactic. You're not going to break down the walls with the small cannons, but what you do is you keep people up all night so that it, it becomes fatigue. You can't, anybody that's been in the military know what I'm talking about. You can't get any sleep. It's boom, boom, boom all night long. Um, so he didn't want to cause, uh, he wanted to cause that. No sleep and then present a situation where it would be fight or flight. Mm. And he was, no one knows this. I mean, he was trained in Napoleonic warfare, which means he's trained on how to take a fortress with four walls. He already knew from spies inside that there were roughly 185 to 250 men inside. And so he knew the numbers. He said, if we attack from all four sides, uh, I don't know, divide 185 by four, uh, 40, 47, 50 on each wall. They, they ain't gonna do that. Uh, that ain't gonna help them at all. But let's give them a, a fight or flight scenario. We'll leave a portion of the wall unprotected, which means we'll faint attacks from all sides, but no attack from the um, southeastern wall, none. So we'll, it's an old Chinese military tactic. To surround the enemy, the Chinese would say, leave them a path of retreat. And people who have no military experience are going to go to the path of retreat. No one in the Alamo had military experience except for Dickinson, the cannoneer, Crockett. Travis had none. He, he was, <laughs> that guy was bloated with fancy words. Um, and a matter of fact, a buoy, Crockett, they couldn't stand him. They couldn't stand him. Well, he was one of those kind of guys that you know he would come up with all kinds of fancy comments, you know, instead of saying we're being attacked, he might say something like, ah, oh, the walls have been breached, gentlemen. I mean, that kind of stuff. And can you imagine Jim Bowie hearing something like that? I mean, Bowie's a thug. I mean, he's a drunken thief. And Travis was so angry at him that he wrote a letter um, to the president of the Republic at that time, who was Smith, and said, could you please remove Bowie? And the, we have a copy of the primary source documentation. Could you please remove Bowie from the Alamo? He's always freeing men from the jail. He's always drunk. He never will obey any orders. So inside the Alamo, there was what people that know about the military, there was no command and control system, none. So they, they all disliked each other. Crockett didn't like Travis. 
Travis didn't like Bowie. Bowie didn't like either one of them. So you you had you had no real command. So that was doomed from doomsday. Yeah, I. One of the things that I appreciated about the book was that one, as someone who's not from Texas. I think in most states in fourth grade, you learn your state history. I don't, I don't know if that's what it's like here. I remember being in New Jersey. Was it, I think I was in New Jersey. No, I was in Pennsylvania when I learned Pennsylvania state history in the fourth grade. So I learned about the founding of Pennsylvania and all of that. But as someone who's a transplant, who's new, if you didn't grow up in the state, if you weren't educated here, you, you don't know what these symbols and the mythology behind these people are. And I found it interesting, you put this, you put this in, the, um, in the book, the old Davy Crockett song, Davy Crockett, King of the Wild Frontier. That old Disney show, I, I, I know I've seen it before, maybe at my grandmother's house or whatever, was the only real context that I had for these people who are elevated to the stature of hero, but actually weren't these, these great warriors that we sometimes think they were or that the, 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 the dominant narrative in the history presents to us. One of the things that I appreciated about what you did as well was make this parallel between, how many of y'all have seen 300, right? So when you see the movie 300, like when it came out like early 2000s or whatever, and so everybody was like, this is Sparta. The New Orleans Saints were like, this is New Orleans, right after Katrina and things like It was like a song to get men hyped, right, to go into sports, to go into CrossFit, to go lift weights. But we forget that they lost, right? That story gets presented to us as if these brave men actually won and then inspired, you know, the, the next battles that led to the W. But a lot of that is taken out of context. So talk about the power of, first, tell us what the myth is about the Alamo and what has been created around and how these folks have been elevated to the status of hero when in reality, they aren't. Yeah, let, let me add a little bit more to that 300 story. The, no one, they tell you about the 300, the reason why they could defend that gorge because it was a gorge supposed to be narrow, narrow as that doorway or something, very narrow, 300 against, uh, depends on which historian you talk to, anywhere from 100,000 on the other side to a million Persians on the other side. Well, nobody in their right mind is going to believe that. Uh, you ain't going to hold that doorway for more than 15 minutes <laughs> against a, a mob, we'll say, an army that huge. So where'd they come up with this stuff? So I got in trouble in school, by the way, for that. Mm. Because I told the, the, the teacher at the time, bless her soul, I told her that I don't believe it, that this battle of this 300 guys were the only people that were there. That doesn't make any sense. Uh, go to the office. You're making a big mess up here. So she sent me to the office anyway. Years later, and I'm talking about this was in high school. Uh, um, years later, I'd start to study the 300. They actually died there with about 6,300. The barbarians who fought with them at the gorge, they were erased from history, mm. and only the people who were Spartans were, were elevated to that step. There's the mythology. that, and, th and that's a beautiful point you bring up because that's how mythology is created, right? You, you, you make up stuff to make it look bigger than it actually was. The 300, yeah, they died there, but 6,000 others who were barbarians, no given no credit, died there as well. And I actually put, I made a list one time to show my class of the different tribes. There's about 40 different tribes 
uh, that they were able to, to uh, make chronicles of yeah. that actually died at the Battle of Thermopylae was the actual mm. name of the battle. So how, 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 does that, how does that mythology, the 300, how do you see that also existing in the Alamo story? Well, the, if you look at the old Alamo stories from newspaper clips, they kept trying to identify their struggle with the struggle that took place at the 300 at the Battle of Thermopylae. And even the poetry of that time, uh, right after the Alamo, early 1900s, even the poetry of that time talked about the brave men at the Alamo, oh, the Battle of Thermopylae. And, and so they tried to combine one myth and create another myth. And, that, and they were really good at doing that um, without ever talking about all of the details, without ever talking about the people who came from Tennessee left Tennessee because in the eastern part of Tennessee, if you study Tennessee history, you'll know in the eastern part of Tennessee it was settled by a lot of Quakers, and Quakers were opposed to slavery. So there was actually warfare going on in the eastern part of Tennessee with slave owners in the other part of Tennessee. So it was a good time for these slave owners to leave, uh, and also a good time because Mexico was allowing land to be bought or to get, you could get land for free if you agreed to kill the Comanches. But, or, or later on, it could be purchased for six cents an acre. It rose up to 12 cents an acre at one time. Well, this is a dream come true for the wealthy plantation owners yeah. who live in Tennessee to expand their institution of slavery, get this land either for free or purchase it very cheap, and then bring their slaves with them. Exactly what Moses Austin did uh, when he brought 400 slaves with him to colonize Texas. Yeah, so a lot of times when we hear history about these battles that are meant to represent freedom, liberty, the American way, we don't always get full context for that history. And so the title of the book, The Alamo, A Cradle of Lies, Slavery, and White Supremacy, really gives us some context for that. So talk to us a little bit about the heroes, right, in the Alamo, those who were fighting for liberty, who are actually, you know, fighting for the maintenance and the expansion of slavery and white supremacy. Talk about how you reveal that in the book and these people who we've elevated to the status of hero who are actually living in a lot of ways this, well, let's this deal double with, life. Let's, let's deal with William Travis first. He was a lawyer by profession. And one of the jobs he took on as a lawyer was to try to retrieve runaway slaves from Louisiana who escaped to Mexico. So he filed lawsuits against the Mexican government to retrieve runaway slaves. Well, some of these runaway slaves actually went to, uh, along where Galveston is at, they escaped to um, Spanish-controlled areas. Um, and when they did, the Spanish, later on the Mexicans, refused to turn them back over to the slave owners. So this made Travis mad. He was, he was the fire eater. He was the guy that, I won't mention any names, but you know another fire eater that had big problems today. But he had, um, he was a fire eater of that time. And so what he did was he started attacking or fainting an attack against the Mexican garrison near Galveston. Uh, it's got a, a Native American name. I forget what it is offhand. Um, and, and, and causing a bunch of trouble, demanding that the slaves be returned to their owners. Mexico refused to do that. In, in this part of the world, Mexico is the Underground Railroad. If you were a slave, you escaped to Mexico. It's too far to go to Canada. Mexico's just down the street. 
so you, you could actually walk that. That's Travis, a guy who filed lawsuits for slave owners mm. to retrieve their slave. Jim Bowie came from a family of slave traders. Uh, he actually purchased slaves in Galveston Island from Anne in Louisiana and New Orleans, from John Lafitte the pirate, um, where he got most of his slaves. As a matter of fact, I hated the fact that I rode on that little tourist boat when I went to New Orleans called it John Lafitte. I'll never do that again, but anyway, um, Jean Lafitte, the slave trader, uh, brought in many slaves into Galveston Island in violation of United States law, by the way, which had already been outlawed. So that's Jim Bowie brought eight slaves of his own, some say 15, depends on which historian you use. Well, I'll say eight to 15 slaves he brought into San Antonio and he married into a Canary Islander family that was pro-slavery too. Now the Canary Islanders here don't like to talk about that. It's like, <laughs> that's what they do. And, but when I went to uh, UT Austin to do some research, Langston, uh, I went to go look at the original ship manifest mm. um, because the Spaniards took, kept excellent records of who got on the boats. They got on the boats um, in the Canary Islands. Canary Islands is off the western coast of Africa. It was originally a Moorish, African, Berber country. It was defeated in three wars. Spaniards defeated them. So these uh, people are conquered. They're Christianized by the Spaniards. They come to San Antonio and they're giving credit for having founded San Antonio. Well, Native Americans were here before that. So I don't even know how they can make that claim, but they do. They, they do it all the time. Bless their souls. But um, it's ridiculous. So to, to, to get to that, Bowie um, purchased slaves that were came in if, by Africa, Canary Islands, Africa, Canary Islands, the Canary Islands was the way station. That's where you got, you picked up the slaves from. Then they were brought into the Americas, into this country. Um, and John Lafitte purchased some from them. Then they come to this country. And on the manifest, I looked at the manifest because um, uh, I can't remember that professor's name that did the history of San Antonio, Mason. Kenneth Mason wrote a book about the history of blacks in San Antonio. He cited in, in one of his footnotes, and don't listen to people. The first thing I read in any research is the footnotes. Yeah, I read the book last. The footnotes come first. Because then I can see the, the, the bibliography. And mm -hmm. So I read the footnotes and it says that the manifest that a certain number, a large number of people who came from the Canary Islanders, Canary Islands, were black. And so I said, okay, where did you get that from? You got it from a, um, oh, I forget, it used to be called a different name. It's a library in Austin now. Uh, it used to be called a Baker Library. Mm. It changed. So I looked at the manifest, and I looked at one guy's name was Juan Cabrera, and this is how he was described. Because in those days, they would vet you physically. They would start at the top of your head. Oh, my God, he's got some curls up there. Oh, hell. Right? Then they'd move down. Nose is too wide. Mmm. And they would keep on doing that until they would write this down. This guy's chestnut colored. He has kinky hair. And they used an archaic form of the word blubber. They used blobber lips. And you could actually see they wrote blobber lips. Yeah. 
in the manifest. Hey everyone, thank you again for your support of Entrepreneurial Appetite. Beginning this season, we are inviting our listeners to support the show through our Patreon website. The founding 55 patrons will get live access to our monthly discussions for only $5 a month. Your support will help us hire an intern or freelancer to help with the production of the show. Of course, you can also support us by giving us five stars, leaving a positive comment, or sharing the show with a few friends. Thank you for your continued support. So Bowie's a, a slave smuggler from getting slaves from Lafitte, who's getting slaves from the Canary Islands, the, who the Spaniards are getting from Africa, and, and so on and so forth. Oh, that's two of them. And Crockett's a slave owner, too. They all are slave owners, all for trying to protect the institution of slavery. And I, I always like this. I don't like it, but there's a quote from Sam Houston. Sam Houston, this is a direct quote from him. I paraphrase it a little bit. Almost got it. Uh, the sturdy men of the North, meaning white people, should shall never mix with the phlegm of the Mexican. And what do you know what phlegm is? Snot. Sam Houston called Mexicans snot. Yeah. Right? Uh, Stephen F. Austin said Mexicans were half-breed, half-Negro, Indian mongrels. Stephen F. Austin, Austin, Texas, is named after him. Yeah, so one of the things that um, I appreciate the, about the book is that it's, it's true to its title. Um, you make really good connections between how the institution of slavery was deeply intertwined in the politics and the battle for the Alamo and those people who were fighting at the Alamo. But then you, you give us a broad understanding of white supremacy. So it's not locked in a white-black binary, right? You talk a lot about indigenous folks. You talk a lot about Mexican folks. Tell us a little bit more about um, how, how people, other than just black folks and white folks, how their histories intertwined uh, with the Alamo and the politics of the day. Well, look, I, I, don't, I don't want to give the impression that Santa Ana was a good guy, right? He had problems with democracy, like somebody else we know nowadays. But he had problems with democracy. And the, the, um, but wherever Santa Ana went, wherever he went, he freed slaves. So they don't like to tell that story. So that's an interesting piece. Another interesting piece is there was a, a, a white Quaker by the name of Benjamin Lundy. He was an abolitionist in, here in San Antonio, in Texas. He actually, he, he had a quote. He wrote a really nice pamphlet called The War in Texas. And in that pamphlet, he said, this, the Battle of the Alamo, the Battle of San Jacinto, San Jacinto, was a slave owner rebellion. A slave owner rebellion because Mexico had abolished slavery. Mm. Uh, by the way, Mexico had one black president named Vicente, uh, Vicente Guerrero. The state of Guerrero is named after him. Black president, when I was in Mexico some years back, I went to the museum there to look up his birth records, and it says mulatto. Um, very interesting story there. When I looked up some of the generals uh, that fought at the Alamo, like General Almonte, Fiziola, some of the others, not Fiziola, but Almonte, um, their records also show they were part black. So you've got a huge black presence in Mexico amongst some of the generals who are part black themselves. And here's the, here's the catch, or here's the, wow, here's the bomb. Get ready, here it comes. And I'm not talking about Parliament Funkadelics, but here comes the bomb. Da bomb. Santa, Santa Ana had an all black regiment. 
in Spanish is called Los Morenos Libres de Veracruz, which means the free blacks of Veracruz. All black folk fought for Santa Ana against the Alamo slave owners. They ever tell that story? Anybody ever hear that in school? Never, never. And so this is some of the nuances that you never hear about. To be a, if your last name is Moreno, anybody have a friend named Moreno? I guarantee you, I can guarantee, I can find your black relative because that's a Costa name. Moreno, um, Alvarado, probably a Costa name too. Um, Prieto, a Costa name, those are black names. Those are names given to black slaves in Mexico. So if your last name is Moreno, I can find, I can find your black relative. Or you can find it yourself if you do an ancestry thing. You might need to pay more than the $49 people. So I, I want to ask you this question because we're, we're, we're at a time um, in our nation's history, I, I think in my, my own lifetime where, where history hasn't been um, ever been contested in this way. Right, so politicians are, are making their, um, what, what I think is the foundations of what their campaigns for the presidency will be, what their campaigns for running certain states will be to getting certain political positions from school board to the White House, right? Um, talk about how, how we, we get an accurate telling of this history um, so that in a, in a way that promotes a more honest approach to how we interact with each other politically and just even in our everyday uh, experiences with one another? One of, one of the things I think people have to do is obviously read other material that doesn't go along with the established story. So I would suggest, I always ask people to read uh, Todd Nelson's book, The Alamo Reader, the big one, 900 pages, very interesting. Dr. Philip Tucker's book, Exodus from the Alamo. Uh, you, you gotta read those kinds of books to get below the surface. Uh, you're not gonna get below the surface from people who have lionized these folks um, from legend. And you know, and I don't like to put on an academic hat, but th there's some important terms that for some groups. Well, you guys are smart, so I guess I'll do it. There's two terms that you ought to, to, to remember understand historicity and historiography. Historicity is the process of a historian trying to determine what's legend and what's actual, what's real and what's false. So you've got to do some historicity. You've got to do that in order to get to the truth. Well, you figure what people that only went to high school and heard what you heard in the fourth grade, right? And they never went beyond that. They're stuck there. They're stuck there. And then the other term, historiography, that's looking at what historians decided to write about. Mm. Why did they decide to write only about this and not about that historiography? Why did that happen? Well, in my opinion, white supremacy has made that, made that happen, right? You don't want to tell a story that's going to make black folk look good. You don't want to tell a story that's going to make brown folk look good. And you don't want to tell a story that's going to make white people who oppose slavery look good either. So you've got to create this mythology that is bundled up in a white supremacist bubble. It's a bubble. And, and, and that doesn't mean that everybody uh, who believes in these legends of the Alamo is a racist. I'm not saying that. 
But I am saying they are caught up in that bubble. Yeah. It's a modern day bubble. And you, you brought up a, a really good point because I think that there's, um, I think that there's, there's a way oftentimes that sometimes that folks of color, um, I don't want to say that. That's not what I want to say. See, that's what happens to professors all the time. Yeah. <laughs> we do that. I did that the other day. The, the right words matter. Yeah, that's the, right. The right. The right words matter. Um, talk, talk about how we go from white, white supremacy to white abolition, right? Because you mentioned towards the end of the book, and you mentioned it just now, like all of these white abolitionists who are left out of the story. So, so talk a little bit about how that could be used um, as a strategy or a tactic for, for opening space, maybe for white folks to, to play a role in correcting the history in a way that, um, in a way that might be a, a bit more uplifting to their history and not something that just gives us this, this narrative that you know white folks were only the slave owners, right? That they were only the oppressor, that there were white folks who were genuinely interested in, in abolition. Well, when, you know, sometimes when I teach, I have a classroom full of whites. Another time, a classroom full of blacks. But I, I notice the whites don't have any heroes beyond the ones that they've been told to worship. They, they don't know about Benjamin Lundy. The heroes they're told to worship, they don't know what lies below the surface. So, and, you know, I, I tell them, if, if, you like, if you'd like, I'll pick your heroes for you. But it won't be any ones you've ever heard of, more than likely. Because the ones that opposed, the white people that opposed slavery, they try to erase them from the history books. Don't, don't bring them up. Um, like during the Civil War and the, uh, Newton Knight and the Free State of Jones. This is one white man who fought against Robert E. Lee and the Confederacy in Jones County, Mississippi, removed the rebel flag, raised the American flag in open rebellion against Robert E. Lee. Well, why, why isn't that white person ever mentioned? Because he doesn't accept the norm of white supremacy. He opposed white supremacy. Matter of fact, he married a black woman and he was buried next to her. He wanted to be buried next to her. He had his men who fought against Robert E. Lee say, when I die, I'm going to be buried next to my black wife. And they said, okay. Uh, and they did. He, they went to the cemetery to bury him. The sheriff was there trying to stop him. And uh, his fighters, they were guerrilla fighters. His fighters said, well, sheriff, why don't you just try to stop us? He wants to be buried here, and that's where we're going to bury him. Against Miss Mississippi law. So these are the kind of people white people need to hear about. You need to hear about these other heroes and not the first, what, 14 presidents who owned slaves. The first, what is it, 14, I believe, somewhere in there. First 14 presidents of the United States were slave owners. Andrew Jackson, probably one, one of the worst. Uh, we're, they are not taught this. So they have this mythology. And it, there's a way to defeat it. So we need to give them some new white heroes. And a guy from uh, West Texas, a white guy from West Texas. And by the way, there's no such thing as white guys. Um, they were invented just like most of us, right? What were white people before they were white? The silence is deafening. They were, you know, they were German, they were Irish, 
they were English, they were French, they were Italian. So how did they get to be white? They were collapsed into that box, sometimes by law, sometimes by custom. In New York, it was by law. They collapsed them into a box called whiteness. Some of this done in the 1700s uh, by scientific racism. Um, There's a whole list of scientific racists um, that made people from Europe get rid of your ethnic origin. So look, I mean, we always worried about black folks don't know their history, and white folks don't know it either. <laughs> so, yeah, they got, they got messed up too. But see, they didn't get messed up like black folks and brown folks did, because they were collapsed into whiteness to create white supremacy. And now don't get happy if you're black, because you got collapsed too. What were you before you were black? No, I'm talking about before that. You were Zulu, you were Mende, you were Shona, you were Shosa, you were Indebele, you were so on and so forth, you were Vai, Bolum, so on and so forth. Ashanti, so on and so forth. The slave traders didn't care about that. So they just said, I don't care what tribe from y'all are all black. And that's how you got to be black. Before that, black Africans did not call themselves black, right? And by the way, I have classrooms full of Nigerians. And, I, and I, it's an interesting thing. I said, did you all ever call yourself black? Did your parents? Never. He said, we only got to be that way when we came to this crazy place. <laughs> I said, well, what were you? And I can tell by, I, I can, I'm pretty good at facial features. Like you look Yoruba, but I said, I look at him, I say, you, you're Ibu or Fulani or you, or Yoruba, I say Ibu. And they would go, how the hell did you know that? And, and I said, well, I study facial characteristics too. I said, but they never call themselves black. And some of them now live in San Antonio. I'm Ibu first. I'm black second. Wow. So they never call, how'd they get to be black? The slave owners collapsed them. And if you're Native American, anybody in here, don't get happy. What were you before you were Native American? Indian, right? Yeah, oh, she's on it. Oh, my goodness. What were you before you were an Indian? You were Cherokee. You were Zapotec in Mexico, Zapotec. You were Apache, Comanche here in San Antonio, Comanche. You were all these different tribes. They didn't want to deal with that. White, white supremacists don't like to deal with differences. Mm. They don't like to do that. They like to put everybody in a box. So then they can do what? Oppress you. That's the nature of white supremacy. So two questions before we, we open it up to the audience here. Um, the first is, as Commissioner Calvert alluded to earlier, is that you, we know that the Alamo part of the city is, is being rebranded. They're, they're doing some modernization, some new things there um, with that. And I, I never knew that I was supposed to call the Alamo City, the River City. That's, that's going to be my language now. Um, and so talk about, talk about how a, as the city, as San Antonio grows, um, as Texas grows, because it will and it is, how do we get a more complete story in, in, in our city to tell um, in a way that enriches all of us, um, but, but makes, but makes, I don't think you could, like the Alamo is not like a, it's not a statue that you can remove 
and put it in a museum. It's not going anywhere, right? And so how do, how do we get more of these authentic stories around our city so that people can consume them in a, in a, in a, in a positive way? Well, it's going to be hard as hell, mm. number one. <laughs> uh, but, and I like what Commissioner Calvert told me one day, the genie's out of the bottle. The genie is out of the bottle. It, they're not going to be able to put it back in the bottle. They, they, can, they can attempt to, to stop us from teaching critical race theory. And as a matter of fact, they're, they're trying to, I think I made a point in the book, or I made a point somewhere, where they don't even like us using the word slavery. So I, one day I wrote an article, and the article was just like this. Slavery, 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 about three pages of nothing but the word slavery. Uh, because they're not going to stop me from saying the word. I don't care what they do. And I, I, some people from Florida called me, or from Georgia, I can't remember what, black students walked out of a classroom because they were told during Black History Month they couldn't talk about slavery during Black History Month. So they asked me, what would you do? I said, go buy you a bullhorn and stand out on the sidewalk in front of the governor's house and teach a black history class all day long. Um, as a matter of fact, they ought to do that at DeSantis' house if he would stop worried, stop worrying about Disneyland. But um, so, so it's going to be very difficult to do. But I think the more and more people learn about what they thought they knew, then I think then some light begins to be to be shown. And, and it doesn't mean you're trying to to tear an icon apart. But you're, what you're doing is adding to the story that's been yeah. completely erased. You, we've, we've been a victim of half-truths, omissions, lies, distortions, and erasures. That's an acronym, y'all. H-O-L-D-E. Hold everything. So when someone starts talking to you about, uh, I, you know, just not too long ago, somebody said, uh, the Civil War in the Alamo was about slavery because most whites didn't own slaves. Uh, true, but the American dream at the time was to own a slave, at least one. That was the American dream. It wasn't Oprah. It was the American dream to own slaves, to, to pick the cotton. Let me tell you, slave owners are the most laziest people in the world. They are not going to pick their own cotton. They're going to use human beings to do that. Yeah. So we have to get across that humanistic side of this story and at the same time give them things that they never knew. Uh, and, and that's my expertise. I love teaching stuff. I make it a point. I'm going to tell you something you never heard. So that kind of makes me different from most historians. So I, I think about me and my homeboy Leroy went to Tulsa a month ago. A month ago today, actually. And it's interesting, we, we know Tulsa's history with Greenwood and the massacre that happened there. And it's, it's really interesting. And I'm, and I'm not saying that, that the way that Tulsa as a city has dealt with this is perfect, because it's not. But there, there is an interesting type of momentum that's happening with people who are moving to Tulsa, people who are natives in Tulsa, about not ignoring that history, but using it as motivation to build and and, and, and really, like, man, the, the, the tech scene that they're trying to build there for black founders is, is amazing. Like, they're importing talent from around the country around this idea of what happened to that community. Um, 
back in the early 1900s. And so I think San Antonio is in a unique um, position to reframe the Alamo and our current status is, you know, the, the distance between people with wealth and without wealth in our community and use that as, um, as motivation to really do some innovative practices. And uh, I, I think that's something we, we all need to consider. Last question before we go to the audience. Um, if there was one additional chapter you would write in this book, what would it be about? I probably would have done a little bit more on the philosophy of white supremacy um, and how it was a controlling factor in this country uh, for a very long period of time uh, and still is to some degree. And I, I would probably have started off at a very elementary level by talking about um, why, why is Jesus still white in most churches? You can go to a black church and he's still white. Why are the angels all white? What happened to the little black angels? They disappeared. Um, I would probably do that because most people don't understand the power of white supremacy um, and how it has been in control, not only from pictures on the wall, but even the words we use on a daily basis. You know, angels food cake, right? That's an old one. What color is devil's food cake? You see my point. There's a very, and, and people don't know this, there's a very famous, um, I, I would spend some time on that. I would spend some time on music too. Uh, there's a beautiful song in Spanish called uh, Angelitos Negros, which means black angels in Spanish. Roberta Flack actually sung the song. Uh, I would spend some time talking about that. Santa Ana played a song at the Alamo called El de Goyo, which is not a pretty song because it means we're gonna cut your throat. But it comes from the Moors. It's a Moorish song. Um, the Moors used it to conquer Spain. And uh, by the way, most of the Alamo defenders ran. They didn't fight to the end. According to Dr. Tucker, only about 60 to 80 stayed inside to fight. I would deal a little bit more with that. I, I mentioned it, but I'll deal with more detail. Um, about 120 ran and were killed where St. Paul Square is right now. Most were killed in that area, uh, a little bit further south, a little bit further east. Uh, about 120 of them were killed. And guess who killed most of them? The black lancers of Santa Ana's soldiers. The black lancers, Los Morenos Libres de Veracruz. Now we spend more time probably looking at that, and that involves some deeper, uh, deeper history. Yeah. But white supremacy is a, a, is a really important piece of that. Uh, we practice, we un, un, you remember the poem you were taught when you were a little kid? About 10 little monkeys jumping in the bed? Do you know the original lyrics to that song? 10 little n-words jumping in the bed. That's the original lyrics. Did you know that? Raise your hand if you knew that. Oh, well, that's good. Half the audience is educated. The rest of you need to get with it, right? Um, <laughs> So, and I know your grandma sung that song to you. And, and you know, grandma didn't know. She's not, you know. Yeah, yeah. So spend a little bit more time on these racist points. There's a bunch of them, too. Like Camp Town races, the ice cream song. Y'all you know what, you know the ice cream man comes in the neighborhood? That, that's N-word loves a watermelon, the original lyrics to that ice cream song. Yeah. 
so, so you had the audience participate by raising their hands. Um, I want to give you all an opportunity to ask some questions. So Deborah has the mic for those of you who have questions. And, and I'm actually not going to have the mic. We have this lovely volunteer, but I do have okay. something I want to say. Yeah. So the team knows I have the privilege of serving on the Alamo Museum Planning Committee and a member of the Fiesta Commission. Those are my, my most stressful days mm. because the powers that be have to be willing to change the narrative so we can tell a true story. And so for that, SACAM is going to start doing something a little different if the history doesn't line up. Mm. I'll just leave it like that. All right, you said get right to the question, so here we are. Uh, as you talked about earlier, this idea of this history being hidden, uh, you, you use an acronym. Whose responsibility is it then to tell that story? Whose responsibility is it to make sure that that history gets heard? Thank you. Well, um, I might have to go get my bullhorn out and do what I said. <laughs> Told other people to do. But there, there is an Alamo, there's an attempt to do an Alamo Museum, and, and I get calls from people, I, I won't say who, but I get calls from people who are wanting to know specific things that are not being talked about in this committee. And I kind of, it makes me angry that when they set up this committee, they purposely excluded me. And not that I got such a big head, but they don't want to hear some stories. And so it's a whitewash going on, in my opinion. And so we have to, I think, add to that story. One person told me they didn't want to add the story about uh, slaves were sold at the Alamo. Slaves were sold at the Minger Hotel at one time. They want to add these stories. Well, we have to make them add these stories. And we do that with the primary source documentation because it's there. It's there. Just a matter of finding it. But sometimes what they get, unfortunately, is they get people that don't want to do any more homework. They already got their PhD, they already got their master's, and oh, I'm here, I have arrived, and, and, but, and don't want to do any more research. Research doesn't stop. You've got to keep doing it. And that's the kind of people we need to challenge that, that stuff that's going on now. I hope I answered I answer the question. I, I, would, I would add that, you know, the way the technology is now, like we're using Zoom, we're using YouTube, and so there are outlets for people who maybe didn't have the platform to get get this knowledge out. The, it's, it's, it's a bit more equitable now because of the technology to get stories told. The real question is how you get people to listen when they don't want to, maybe. That's the hard part. Thank you so much for having this conversation. I think it's a, it's a little bit bizarre to have it in the witty. Um, but I'm but I'm thankful that it's happening. I'm thankful that it's happening now. Um, I am from San Antonio. I you mentioned a lot of names, none of which were female, and so wanted to talk about gender relationships, intersections as it relates to white supremacy within gender, and if that is talked about in the book. Um, so if you could speak to to that. Okay. What, what's the question? How, how, are, how are women represented in the book as it relates to, you know, white supremacy, slavery, and the lies and the myths that exist around, around Alamo? I should have done a better job with that. And, and I, that's, that's my criticism of myself. Um, because 
when when you talk about history, women are norm, normally excluded from that because we live in not only do we live in a white supremacist society, we live in a male-dominated society as well. There, you know, something I might add in another chapter to this or edited version at some point is the, the Comanche women. You know, there were Comanche warriors that were women that fought uh, against Texas settlers. There were a bunch of them. There were Apache women that fought against Texas settlers. Um, they were warriors on horseback. That's not talked about. There, there were black women on the Texas border. Uh, there's one family of black women on the Texas border that helped runaway slaves cross the border. Uh, her and her husband and a Hispanic family made up of, of, of Hispanic men and women who helped blacks escape uh, slavery. So that's a whole nother story uh, that needs to be told. And the Native American story as its relationship. Um, boy, they, 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 the bad news is the Native Americans were used by every side, every side. The Spanish used them for their own benefit. The, the Angles used them for their own benefit. They were bounced around really in all kinds of ugly, ugly ways. They were all eventually removed from Texas by 1882 in genocide, ethnocide, and all those other negative things. And, and the role that women played in, in that, in fighting against that, is very important. The, the role that women played in the Civil Rights Movement is very important. Uh, Ella Baker, one of the great women of the Civil Rights Movement, uh, of course, going back to slavery, Harriet Tubman, all, all of them need to be honored um, and talked about their contributions. Hell, Harriet Tubman led Union soldiers in a battle against the slave owners. That, that story needs to be told. So your question is taken to heart because there's not enough of that being done. I should have done more, but I plan on doing more. I ain't done yet, as they say. <laughs> Do you address Emily Morgan? Do you address Emily Morgan? Yeah, oh, you know, going back to that lady again. Come back here. Going back to that lady again. <laughs> Don't be gunning her right now. Um, yeah, now, now I'm going, by the way, when I did my DNA, I had about between 12 and 15% from, I don't know, five different African countries. So I had a lot of that down below, too, from Sierra Leone, Burkina Faso, from Nigeria, and 2% from the Congo, but it all came out to about 15 to 20%, somewhere in there. But anyway, I, I did the forward to one of Dr. Philip Tucker's books on Emily Morgan. Her real name was Emily West. I think I mentioned her in there. I did. So, and, and I haven't read my own book in a while. I should have brought the one I had with all those yellow postums in it. But I wrote the foreword to Dr. Phillips Tucker on Emily Morgan. She never slept with Santa Ana. That's another myth. They made that up. And, and I, matter of fact, I, years and years ago, I went to go talk to the manager at the Emily Morgan Hotel. And you ain't going to believe this. Well, you will believe it. I said, excuse me, but um, you know this Emily Morgan thing is a myth, right? She never slept with Santa Ana. Um, all the evidence shows her real name was West. It was changed to Morgan because she signed a contract. And there's a, the actual contract is in the primary source documents. She signed a contract for $100 a year to work for Colonel Morgan, who owned a hotel down near Galveston somewhere. 
And so Morgan was smart. He was he's a pro-slavery man too, but he didn't want anybody to know that he had hired a free black woman to work at his hotel doing the laundry. So Emily West becomes Emily Morgan to protect his butt. <coughs> that story's not told. <coughs> well, Emily Morgan got caught up in the fighting at um, at Peggy's Lake or whatever it was called, Peggy's something. Got tied up in that fighting at San Jacinto. Um, and by the way, the reason why Santander lost at San Jacinto is because all of his crack troops went chasing Sam Houston. They got outmaneuvered. You call that a flanking maneuver. They got outflanked. And so when Sam Houston attacked Santa Ana, he only had young soldiers there with not much battlefield experience because the veterans were gone to chase Sam Houston. That's why he lost in 18 minutes, because he had no real soldiers there to fight. And Emily Morgan was not there in the tent sleeping with Santa Ana. They made that up. And I could see why they made it up. Look, that's white supremacy at work, right? Black women, they sleep with anybody, according to white supremacists. And Santa Ana, you know how those Mexican men are, right? Yeah. So, so that story made sense, right, from a racist, sexist point of view. Another myth. First of all, sir, I'd like to say right now, we need more people like you to help get the truth out. It gets out there because of books like this. And I'd like to say thank you for writing it. Now, the question I have for you is that I studied the Alamo, too. And I often call it a battle that should never have happened. And I was just wondering if you agree with the premise that, first of all, the Alamo had no military value whatsoever. And Santa Ana could have got around it. But he didn't because he hated the Tejanos, who he blamed for starting the rebellion. And the other thing I'd like to ask you about, or have you input onto, is you always hear these hundred and some odd men standing off 2,000 men, when in reality, Santa Ana at the most only sent about 500 men actually against the Alamo, while the rest of them sit and watch the war go on. So. Okay. Yeah, that's a good question. That, that, good military question. Um, let me address that. Santa Ana never... Did anybody see that original John Wayne fake movie? Yeah. Well, it's all baloney. They, they even had uh, Richard Widmark playing Bowie, and he had a, what they call a, a seven-barrel knock, a knock, a Navy weapon. Yeah. That, that nobody... That, he never had that in reality. Uh, because, by the way, it would blow your shoulder out shooting that thing all at one time. He never had that weapon, but in the movie, they made him have that weapon. Um, there were never 7,000 troops. Anybody know what the, what the trailer to the movie said? I memorized it as a kid. It, it went like this. 185 men fighting to their death against a horde of 7,000 in the most savage hand-to-hand -hand combat since time began. <laughs> the Alamo in Todd A.O. Todd A.O. is a... By the way, Booker, Todd A.O. is a cinemagraphic technique. Anyway, never mind. Uh, there was never 7,000 troops there. The, the most, from what I gather, the historian, depending on who you talk to, total of about 1,500 stationed in the area. He never used all of them to attack the Alamo because he attacked from the northern wall. By the way, the Alamo is much bigger than it is now. 
it was huge, right? It was sure it was huge. Um, they attacked on the northern wall. They left the other side open so the others would run out out the back. Um, and so they never had those numbers. Those numbers are exaggerated. And of course, when you're talking about this is the way white supremacy deals with Mexican troops. They're hordes. Yeah? Horde. That's a white supremacist. They love that word. Hordes are out after us. They love that word. It's a white supremacist term. Um, so you see the, the, all these terms. By the way, the Alamo movie was shown in a sunset. Y'all know what a sunset town is? It, it, it's a town with, if you're, if you're black, yeah, or you're too dark of a Mexican, you can't go there unless you're a domestic worker. And where they showed the film, The Alamo, it was in Los Angeles Heights. And I believe, I think it was it, probably the Woodlawn Theater was located in Los Angeles Heights at the time. That was a town where blacks and Mexicans couldn't buy a house in, couldn't rent in, nothing. But that's where the Battle of the Alamo with John Wayne, that's where that film debuted in a sundown town. That should tell you something right there. But you're absolutely right about those numbers. Those numbers were never, never there. Um, they, they, 20 minutes, the most I've heard, Dr. Tucker told me, um, 20 minutes to kill all of the Alamo defenders inside, 20 minutes max, kill them all. The ones that ran, it took about two and a half hours to hunt them down and kill them. And I could see that. And um, they were probably killed according to, I, I had to get a couple, I had to buy a couple of books uh, in, in Spanish uh, on the history of the Mexican army uh, and, and then translate it. And my translation skills suck. But anyway, but I did a pretty good job of it to understand, excuse my language, but to understand um, the, those particular dynamics. Um, there was one report that Travis actually shot himself. Um, there was one report, um, and those, that was given by two Tejanos. By the way, don't be confused about the word Tejano, because there were two kinds of Tejanos. There were those who supported the slave owners, like Juan Seguin, and Antonio Navarro, those are slave guys, right? As a matter of fact, Antonio Navarro lived long enough to hear uh, the, um, the emancipation, I believe it's emancipation. He lived long enough to hear it, and his quote was, that was a stupid law. Antonio Navarro supported slavery always. Once again, another slave owner. That's why they supported the slave owners. So, and the, but the slave, the Tejanos that, opposed slavery and actually supported Santa Ana, you'll never hear about them, the Leal Militia in San Antonio. They joined in with Santa Ana's troops. You never hear about the nine, the nine white guys, we'll call them white guys, uh, maybe they still call themselves Caucasian because they were confused, but nine white guys jumped the wall, according to um, Todd Nelson and Dr. Tucker, jumped the wall and told Santa Ana's men where the Alamo defenders had hidden some 50-some-odd rifles in the center of San Antonio. And then, of course, they took off. And these are nine white guys. We're, we're not fighting here. That's crazy. And to get to your other point, Sam Houston told um, Travis to abandon the Alamo. This didn't make no sense to, to stay here. But no, you know, he's a great... He's a great Shakespearean. I would rather die, but upon the breach. I mean, that kind of stuff. Um, and of course he did. And his big mouth got him in trouble. 
But so, so no one knows those stories, um, but they're there in the primary source documents. So as you can see, I mean, I could go on all night. I could do this all night. You can stay here all night if you want. <laughs> um, because there's always something that's in my mind, it, it just flows like a river that I won't be ever, ever, be, ever be able to get it all out. How you doing, Mr. Solis? Solis. Where are you? There you are. How are you? All right. I just had a question. In your book, do you discuss the relationship of the early blacks in Mexico from uh, the black Olmecs to uh, Vicente Guerrero? In your book, do you discuss that? So he's asking, do you, do you discuss um, the early relationship with the blacks in Mexico, yeah, yeah. starting with the black Olmecs, and also Vicente Guerrero, who was the second president of Mexico. Yeah, I'll give you the, I'll, I'll give you the short and dirty. Otherwise, we'll be here till maybe midnight. But I'll give you the short and dirty. The short and dirty is in Mexico. At one time, there were more black Africans in Mexico than there was anywhere else at, during the advent of the of the slave trade, the Atlantic slave trade, what the slave owners called the triangular trade uh, from Africa to the Americas and then back to Europe. That's how Europe got rich from the slave trade. That's how come the Eiffel Tower is there. Those beautiful museums all built as a result of white supremacy and slavery. So, but all of these blacks were enslaved. One of the first, the first slave rebellion before Toussaint Overture was a black Angolan slave that led a fight against the Spaniards named Yanga. Yanga defeated the Spaniards and intermarried with the native population. They created their own society, San Patricio, I forget the whole name. Uh, they created a, a, their own government up in the hills in Mexico, all black folk. And, and um, that, that's one aspect of it. The other aspect of it, and you're probably referring to, they came before Columbus, which is a very good book because it talks about the blacks who probably came and sailed here to the Americas. And this guy's been, I mean, this guy's been attacked like crazy. He was attacked. Uh, what's his name? Ben Sertema. Yeah. Yeah, he's been attacked like crazy because he said those statues that you can find in the Yucatan, they're obviously, no doubt about it, these are statues of black people. Those statues have been there for a very long period of time. So that, that tells, I think that tells honest historians that there was a black presence in the Americas centuries ago. People were using boats centuries ago. There, there has been a sh some, the remains of a ship found in Egypt, for example, 2,500 years ago, before supposedly before there was shipbuilding going on. So I'm, we know all of this stuff that we learned is not true that there were plenty of African Africans who were either as slaves or as free people living in Mexico, in the Americas. And, and my, God, my goodness, Portugal brought all those slaves into Brazil. Brazil had the biggest black population uh, that there was. And by, the, by the way, they're still in a struggle of, as Afro-Brazilians to claim their identity, their black identity, because their identity has been denied for centuries. The Portuguese were probably the worst. They, they destroyed a lot of the records. 
the Spaniards kept the records, which got them in trouble. But the, the Portuguese, in an attempt to erase black history, they destroyed all of those black uh, records of blacks migrating or coming as slaves or coming as free people um, via Havana, Cuba, from Africa, Havana, Cuba, and then, and then to the Americas. A lot of free blacks fought for Santa Ana. They were either Morenos or Pardos. If you were a Moreno, you were dark-skinned um, Mexican, black, Afro-Mexican. If you were a Pardo, uh, which is where the word Prado comes from as well, you were a lighter-skinned uh, African and, uh, or, or Afro-Mexican. So I don't know if I answered your question, but I could go on. I love this story. Yeah, by, by the way, he was he was the godfather of Santa Ana's children because he he came from Veracruz, the the, the port of Veracruz. Santa Ana came from the port of Veracruz, so they knew each other. Uh, so Guerrero was a very important person. He abolished slavery. He also abolished the casta system. Do y'all know about the casta system? Right? If you if you're they gave you a name based on your skin color. Mm -hmm. And you ain't gonna believe this. In some Spanish birth certificate books, it, guess what the child is named? Tostala. Means you're toasted. Right? That's what it says in your birth record. So Guerrero abolished that system, right? Um, you could be mulatto. Everybody, when you say mulatto, everybody says, oh, that's French. No, it's not. It's Spanish. The French got it from the Spanish. By the way, when I tell people about the Germans of Louisiana, they don't know nothing about that. The biggest slave rebellion in the country was the German coast yeah. uh, slave rebellion. So we have time for, for one more question. Um, and so the young lady sitting up front. Uh, my question is, what are we going to do about education now that they have said that you cannot teach anything about black history? I was Talk asking, louder. what are we going to do about the education of the children now? Because they, they are taking away, the teachers cannot teach anything about black history. And I, I think that's wrong. So what are, we, what are we gonna do about education? These kids don't know anything about anything. I bet they don't even know that today was the anniversary of Dr. King's assassination. Well, Mom, think about this. Some people in the, in the government are trying to stop us from teaching black history. Uh, by the way, and somebody here, I won't call her name, but used to live on a street called Graham Street. Um, I'll tell you, look, the biggest slave, what are we always taught about San Antonio? Well, there were no real big slave plantations here. Yes, there were. A huge one on the Civil Oak Creek. And uh, I looked at the slave schedule for um, Guadalupe County, which Guadalupe County did not exist at that time. It was Bear County. The biggest slave plantation in Bear County was on the Civil Oak Creek. About 600 slaves owned by a slave owner named Brahan. The Brahan Street is right down Broadway here. It's named after him because he had another smaller plantation at the back, the west, at the back of Fort Sam Houston, right there off of Broadway. So then they don't want to tell you about that either. Um, huge slave plantation in Bear County. They try to make it like, look like it was only domestic workers. No, it wasn't. And I think there's a lady here, uh, 
knows about the Black Seminoles. Um, there was a Black Seminole named Wildcat who said he was going to free slaves on the Brahan Plantation if he got the chance to do it. So guess what they did in San Antonio? They enacted a slave code. 1850, they exacted, there's about 21 articles saying if you're black, this the sheriff, or they call him the marshal at the time, the town marshal would come out and ring a bell in front of San Fernando Cathedral. By the way, that's where they sold slaves at, in front of the Catholic Church. He would ring a bell, and all blacks had to be off the street by 9 o'clock because they were afraid that this black Seminole leader was going to free the black slaves in Bear County. Yeah. That's a story nobody knows about, but it's one that we can discover uh, just looking at the primary source documents. And so I, I would just add to your question that um, institutions, organizations like SACAM are good places to bring children to learn that history. Um, I, I would also add that children know a lot. And they, they sometimes know more than we think that they do. And our approach to them um, isn't always helpful when we say, like, these kids don't know anything because they have access to, despite what they may not be getting in the classroom, they have access to um, TikTok, to, you know, Instagram and, and, and YouTube to provide them those outlets. But it's, it's, it's our responsibility to make sure that they're going to, you know, vetted sources, vetted sources for that. So... I want to thank all of you for being here. I want to thank all of you supporting SACAM, for supporting Professor Salas. Thank you for joining this edition of Entrepreneurial Appetite. If you liked the episode, you can support the show by becoming one of our founding 55 patrons, which gives you access to our live discussions and bonus materials. Or you can subscribe to the show, give us five stars, and leave a comment. 